Rich asked me if I'd stand back here so you all in the corners wouldn't be excluded. Well, praise God, we've, we've established some of that relationship principle, and I think that that's necessary to begin here. One of the reasons I love speaking with youth is because I see so much potential. You know, there's a verse in, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, says it's a, good for a young man to bear the yoke in his youth. That means to pull the load. And as I see a, a group of youth, and I see the potential, we live in a generation that I believe is the last time, and uh, there is promised that there's going to be a falling away in the last time. And many, much of the warning that we receive in the Bible for the last time, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is deception. And I think a lot of deception can be averted as we have a clear understanding of who God is. There's a lot being, a lot being pushed on young people today through different means of uh, communication and a lot of access that all of you have to, to uh, communication that has a lot of atheism and a lot of cynical uh, servants of Satan trying to convince young Christians that, that Christianity is, is, is false. And if you are strong as a Christian, you can refute that. And um, I'd like us to think in relation to God. You know, uh, many people are very judgmental of God. They immediately say, you know, this crime and all this wickedness and that cruelty and that, you know, God's God and he could avert all this and he could, he could control it. He's obviously not a loving God and we pass judgment on God. You know, I, I, I just take a little blade of grass and I say, look, I don't even know how this is made. I have no idea. God's so much more, so much more intelligent. He's so infinite in his understanding, and I am judge, I'm standing as his judge. I'm not his judge. He knows what he's doing, and we have to accept who he is and, and until we can figure out and make a world of our own that's better. Let's not be judgmental of God for what he's done. He's got a purpose. And so young people... Take the yoke in your youth. You know, as I think of people that like Abraham, like David, like, um, like Moses, that affected their generation. Imagine this group of young people here being, having that faith in their hearts, affecting our generation, being strong. You can be a tremendous in impact. One Abraham affected his whole generation. How about a hundred people? Here that will affect our generation, have a strong faith, have a relationship, an active relationship with God. That would be a that'd be a wonderful. We develop even spark that interest, that desire, that relationship with God, and, and encourage that, spur that on. Well, we looked at God's God as the relationship between the steward and the owner. I want to look at God's ownership of our bodies explicitly. You know, we may, we may think, I work for a living, I make my own living, I earn everything I do, I have, I have labored for it, now why do I owe God anything? How is it that God owns me, or owns my body, or owns me as a person? And uh, <clears throat> in the very beginning, Satan uh, lied to our or our original fathers in basically saying God's holding out on you. God, 
doesn't want you to have the best. You know, if you would eat this fruit, you'd become like God's, and God doesn't want you to have what, what uh, you deserve. And uh, that opening that mankind gave Satan, into, gave Satan into his life brought mankind into slavery. And mankind is a slave of Satan. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what in your mind as you think of yourself as being God's, God's individual, what, what gives God the right to own you? In what sense do you believe that initially, why, why would God own you? Does anybody have a thought? Anybody have a thought? What, why does God own you? Chad, why does God own you? Okay, very good. He created us. He owns us because he created us. You know, he didn't, uh, he, didn't, he didn't take out a loan or anything. He, you know, he had all the materials and he made us. And uh, so he owns us in that sense. But we see man drifting away from God. And um, God made man in a very unique way. He created him with a unique feature that I call a free will. And some disagree with that, but I really believe that a free will of man is, is one of the very essential ingredients in mankind. Because I believe without a free will, man is really just a, a, a robot. And God is not a robot. And we're made in his image, and he's not a robot, so we're not a robot. That argument is used by Paul on, the, on, the, uh, on Mars Hill in Athens when he was speaking to the, uh, to the idol worshipers there. He said, those idols that you're worshiping, they can't talk and they can't see. And you say they're your gods. You know, surely if you, if, if, they, if uh, they were your gods, you'd look somewhat like them and act somewhat like them. And he says, but he said, uh, he made the statement, very unique statement in relation to God there in, 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 uh, in Athens. He made the statement that we are the offspring of, of God. He said, we are the offspring of God. And he was declaring God to them and said, we are his offspring. Now, that's an interesting word, the offspring of God. We're created in his image, we're his offspring. When you think of offspring, you think of, you think of, of your children. You know, if I have offspring, they're my children, and they're surely going to have a lot of my characteristics, probably more so than any other person. So we are the offspring of God. We're of that, uh, we're of that lineage. We're of that line. And Satan wants to destroy that. And here we are. We're, we're created in the image of God. We have the free will. When you think of worshiping, as some, one of you mentioned, to bring glory to God, worshiping God, how would, how would you accomplish that if you had no free will? How would you accomplish an, act, uh, uh, an actual act of worship to God if you have no free will? If you didn't make the choice, would it even worship God? Even if you went through the motions, would it bring any glory to God if you didn't choose to do it? And so, so God made us in his, in his own image. So, so mankind exercises that free will and he chooses and he loses his identity as a possession of God. Okay, we're going to look at a little bit how does God reclaim mankind as his possession. Mankind has lost that identity as as God's people through his, through his, his uh, defection or his choosing to follow Satan, obeying and, uh, and uh, following Satan. 
man has lost that, at least to a degree. <clears throat> so how does God reclaim mankind? In Exodus 12, 12, it says, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And then dropping down into chapter 13, the Lord said unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Here we see an example of God claiming a group of people. God claimed the firstborn by, by what? By redemption, by, by rescuing from death. Okay, we have all of mankind is being destroyed here. Uh, the, not all of mankind, the firstborn are being destroyed. And God puts his hand of protection across uh, over a group of people. And it's through the blood of, the, of that lamb that was slain. And he puts his hand of protection and he said, I'm claiming these as mine. They're going to be mine from this time forward because I've rescued them from death. They are mine. <clears throat> so God rescued the children of Israel, the, the firstborn from, from death that night when the, when the angel of death passed over, uh, <clears throat> when the angel of death passed over Egypt that night. So we have a group of people, a large group of people, and if you could estimate with me, the percentage would be rather large of firstborn, every firstborn child. It could be a mother, it could be a father that had been first born in their families. It could, be, it could be a boy or a girl, but out of every family, at least one likely. At least one, it could be two or three if the father and mother could both. But in that household, there was a purchase made of an individual. And they, began, they became this, this owner, they, they became the possession of God, a special possession. Now we have in Numbers 3.11... <clears throat> that uh, if you remember the circumstance where the children of Israel fell back into worshiping the golden calf. Moses went up onto the mountain. The children of Israel gathered around. They made a golden calf and they began to worship it. God brought punishment and he brought, he brought uh, judgment upon the children of Israel. And, and there was a group of people that stood up for God, and it was the Levites. And God had a people he called the firstborn. He said, they're mine. They're my special possession. God had purchased them through the lamb, the blood of the lamb spread across the doorpost. God had purchased this special group of people, and he says, they're mine. Now, at this point in time, and probably most of you are not aware of this, in Numbers chapter 3, God chose a different group of people. God chose a group called the Levites. And he says, I'm going to make a trade with you. I'm going to trade the firstborn for the Levites. You, the, Levi, the firstborn were mine. I'm going, to, I'm going to take my possession and I'm going to put it on the, on the Levites. So God traded with the children of Israel the, the Levites for the, the, uh, the firstborn. 
The passage is number 311. Uh, verse 12 says, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. For on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I have hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. Mine they shall be. I am the Lord. So we see a special possession that God had amongst the firstborn, and then he traded. And he even made this into a very, very uh, carefully, uh, a, a careful financial deal, you could say. He, he even said, look, you have more firstborn, there's less Levites, therefore you're going to have to compensate for the lesser amount that of, of people that I have than what I had. And you will put 50 shekels into the treasury, I think it was for each person more that you received than I did. So God made this trade. <clears throat> and uh, I bring this out so that we can see that God has a special people that he owns. And I would like to, as we go through, show how that God chooses us and, and purchases us. In Titus chapter 2, turning over to the New Testament, uh, Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy, to Titus, he says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And that word peculiar means a people of God's own possession, a special possession or property. The church is the property of God. It's his pur purchased possession. Ephesians 1.14, God's own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That word peculiar is, again, a, a people peculiarly possessed by God, a property of God, that you should bring forth the praise of him who has called you out of darkness into the, into the marvelous, into his marvelous light. <clears throat> Acts 20, 28 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the flock and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. And here we get to the very basis of how we as children of God are owned and have been purchased by God. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. If you wanted a memory verse to remember, Verse, this one would be a good one for the whole, for the, for the, uh, for the lessons this, uh, this youth, uh, this, this youth meeting, this would be a good memory verse for us, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, for this youth rally. It says, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, the Holy Ghost is in you which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. We are not our own. Why? For ye are bought with the price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our body and our spirit. Now, if we can accomplish something outside of that, then that's ours, okay? If you can do something outside of your body and your spirit, then that's yours. But if you are operating in your body or in your spirit, then what you do is God's. Okay, 
So it says, you are bought with the price. Anybody tell us what the price is? You are bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Anybody know what the price was? Anybody know what the price was? You're bought with the price. Let's turn to, let's uh, look at 1 Peter 1.18. For as not much as you know that you were, re you were not redeemed with corruptible things, you were not bought with physical possessions or dollars. It says such as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So when and, and by whom was this price paid? Someone can tell me that. Who, who paid the price for us? Jesus paid the price for us. When did he do it? When he hung on the cross. Very good. See, that's a, that's a New Testament reality. That's not an Old Testament reality. Now, by faith, possibly Abraham could have said that. But in reality, Christ died and his blood is the price that purchased us. Not just in a, in a sweet by and by. No, he purchased us now, body and spirit. We are God's possession. We are owned by God. And it's by that, the precious blood of Jesus Christ that we are bought. It says, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelleth in you. You know, that's an amazing purchase. And uh, to add to what we looked at this morning in relation to the relationship between God as the owner and us as, a, as his stewards, the value that God put on us, the value that he has on humanity, that he was willing to send Jesus Christ because he so much wanted a relationship with us. He so much cared that he was willing to do what he did. But we have been bought. You know, so much of our uh, society today teaches a, a, a gospel that's very futuristic and, and really the, the, the goal of Christianity in, in most of the world today is that in eternity you'll be saved from hell. That's the goal of Christianity being taught today. You have the blood of Jesus Christ as your atoning work and, and you're safe, okay? You're safe. You don't have to worry about hell and eternity, okay? It's not going to have any effect in your life today. You can live like you would. If you don't live, if you try to change who you are and live a godly life, that means you're trying to earn your salvation and that means you're probably not a Christian. People are saying things like that today and they don't realize that the purchase of Jesus Christ is not is not only for some time in eternity. That is for now. You become his possession. And to the degree that you own that possession and own him as your owner, and to the degree that you submit yourself to that, to, to Christ as his, as his steward, to that degree your life is going to be changed and it's going to have, have reality as a Christian. Today's Christianity has very little to no reality. There's no power there because people are thinking of their Christianity as some futuristic event that it's, a, it's like a fire insurance that's going to kick in when I die. And in this life, there's no change. That's not true. To the degree that we believe and we practice that kind, our life becomes absolutely 
purposeless in this, in this life. Yes, we have a hope in eternity. Yes, we have eternal life by the blood of Jesus Christ. But it begins now. And it begins as you actively pursue following Jesus Christ in a realistic way. Actively pursue that relationship on a daily basis. Actively pursue that. Stewardship before God is actively pursuing that. And it has to do with disciplining our lives to follow Christ. We choose to do it on purpose. We do things on purpose to be more effective and more useful in the kingdom. It's not something futuristic. It begins now. Eternal life begins now in your life and in your heart, changing you. And how do we do it? Jesus came into the world. He didn't just come to die. He came and he lived an exemplary life for you. The things he did made him who he was. You can wear this little wristband that says, what would Jesus do? And that might be a good choice for you to follow when you're making a decision. But if that's all you do in Christianity is wait for a choice to make, you're not going to live the life. It's not, you're not going to live the life. You need to live the life that Jesus lived if you're going to make the choices. Jesus didn't, didn't decide what would Jesus do before he made a choice. No, he was Jesus and he, did, and he chose what he, what he did because of who he was. And each one of us chooses to do what we do because of who we are, our identity. And, and you know, many times we can think, okay, I'll, I'm going to follow. Say, for example, I want to be a, a, a superstar something, maybe a, a basketball player. So, say I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play basketball like Michael Jordan, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear the shoes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear the, the, the clothes. You know, I'm going to wear the hat. You know, now I'm going to play, right? No, no, you're not going to play. The life you live is what's going to make you that. And it's that simple in Christianity. You're not going to play. You're not going to play the game if you don't live the life. You're not going to play the game if you don't live the life. And that's what stewardship's about. It's, it's reality, discipline of Christianity. There's things like meditation. There's things like prayer. There's things like Bible reading that have to be a part of your life. You're going to have to follow Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ do? That's who he was. It's not, it's not just this little decision you make and then you're, you're good until, he, until you die and then eternity's yours. No, the Christian life starts here and now. Every day of your life, you're a Christian, and you make those decisions by the basis of who you are. You don't, you don't, you don't go to the competition. Just like Jesus on the, in the most crucial moments of his life, he didn't have to ask the question, what would Jesus do? No, he went to the cross because Jesus was who he was, and that was an outflow of his life. He gave his life because he was... He was Jesus, and each one of us will be a Christian and will be Christian as we are a Christian every day of our life. And I didn't mean to throw a slam on that, on that aspect because it's wonderful if we ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? That's wonderful. That's a way to live our life. But let's don't limit it to that. <clears throat> Becoming a, a special possession of God, it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. The price was paid to purchase us and make us that special possession. And now, 
We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been purchased as that. And, um, and in our world today, I see so many, so many things, and I believe it's a conspiracy. How many of you guys believe in a conspiracy? Not very many believe in a, a few of you. Well, I believe the devil has a conspiracy, and he's been at it for a long time. He's really good at it. But I think for the last 2,000 years, Satan has a conspiracy, and he wants to stop Christians from being effective. Because when Christians are effective, the kingdom of God goes forward. When young people are inspired to serve, to follow, to discipline their lives, to be in God's will, and are willing to give up chasing the fads of this world, willing to give up the, uh, the admiration of their peers and say, I'm following Jesus Christ, nothing else really matters. Uh, how can you have faith who have the praise of men? Uh, if a person just puts his heart in saying, the rest doesn't matter, I stand before God. But God has called us, and here in, uh, in Titus we looked at the verse says, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, a peculiar people zealous of good works. Guess what Satan hates? If he's lost you, if he's lost you for, from, if, if you've given your heart to the Lord, he hates that. But he hates it worse if you're zealous of good works. Zealous of good works. And that's one of the conspiracies that Satan has against you. And I know I don't have time to go into it in detail. But there is a religion today that's, that's teaching that Christianity is by faith and by faith alone. And, and it's true. We cannot uh, do one godly deed that would pay for any of our sin. Can we keep that very clear in our mind? No godly deed that you do in all of your life will ever pay for any of your sin. You can't pay for your sin. The only thing that pays for sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, the Christian life, you have been redeemed unto good works. The purpose for your salvation and one of the major thrusts of your salvation is that you be a child of God and that you live for him and you be zealous unto good works. I've even heard someone make the statement. There's a verse in Romans that says that Paul says, being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but having the righteousness, which is of Christ. Okay, this person's saying, okay, not being found having my own righteousness. So God doesn't want my righteousness, okay? And that statement, say, he made the statement, says, if you're trying to be righteous, you're probably not a Christian. You know, based on that one verse. And that to me is a conspiracy. That's a conspiracy. God loves it when you want to be righteous. Now, if your own righteousness, and, and here's a misunderstanding. The word righteous is translated... Righteousness is translated righteousness, and it's translated justification. Justification, and that, I believe, is what Paul is really indicating. He says, being found in him, not having my own justification, which is of the law, but, but, having, uh, but, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, being found in Jesus Christ. So we see that's a conspiracy, and uh, we're looking at imparted or imputed righteousness, basically. You know, if there's people saying that you can either choose to have your own righteousness 
Or you can choose to have the righteousness of Christ as though there is a choice. And I believe herein lies the conspiracy. Now, how many of you would rather have your reward in eternity or the reward of Jesus Christ? Well, every one of us, if we, if we at all understand our own righteousness and Christ's righteousness, that say, of course, I'll choose the righteousness of Christ. His reward will be far greater. But is that what Jesus, that, is that what Paul is saying here when he says, being found in him having not our own righteousness, but the, but the righteousness which is of Christ? I don't believe that's what he's saying. In the day of judgment, when you stand before God, God will not say, okay, I'm going to impute to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means to say, you have raised the dead. You have given sight to the eyes of the blind. You have caused the lame to walk. No, God's not going to do that. The Bible clearly tells us that each one of us is going to be judged according to our own works, not to the works of Jesus Christ. What is going to happen at that moment is that as you've trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ, your life will be clean. Your life will be pure before God. And you, the, the, the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse your life from sin. And we believe that. But faith in Jesus Christ causes us to rise up and to follow Christ and to live a life of godliness. Justification means or blamelessness. When we think of a conspiracy to destroy the kingdom of God and keep it from being effective, there are several other, I'll, I'll for the sake of time, I'll jump to the, my last point here. There's another verse that I think is being misused. There's a verse over here in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. And it's a very common, commonly used verse in, in, in Christianity. And it's a beautiful verse. But I think it's taken out of context and you be the judge. But I think it's hugely destructive because it is taken out of context. Isaiah 64, 6. Here Isaiah is lamenting. He says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Verse 7, and there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us, and thou hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Okay, here is Isaiah saying, nobody's calling upon God. Everybody's wicked, and even our righteousnesses are as a filthy rag. Now, there, this, is a, this is a very disgusting picture. Okay, now, Christianity today has taken this verse out of the Old Testament, and they have said that, it, that all of the righteous acts of a Christian are as a filthy rag. If you, would, if you actually rationalize what that's doing, it would be saying that, okay, if I'm righteous, God thinks it stinks. Do you think your good deeds stink before God? Do you really think they do? If you really think they do, then you won't be practicing godly deeds, will you? What does the Bible really say the Christian, the sincere godliness of a Christian is? It's not a filthy rag at all. Don't let anyone tell you all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. They use this Bible verse as a proof. 
No, your righteousness is not a filthy rag. If you're a sincere Christian and you're following Jesus Christ with a proper motive, your righteousness is a beautiful thing. Let's, let's see what the Bible says about your righteousness. It says, the Apostle Paul says here, Hebrews 13, 21, he make you, you perfect in every good work to do his will, according working in you that it which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.18 says, but I have all. Paul is talking to, to the Philippians here. He says, but I have all and abound. I am full and have received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell. He says this sacrifice, he says it's a sweet smell. It's a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. He didn't say what you did for the kingdom of God is a filthy rag. He says, no, it's an odor of a sweet smell before God. What you have done. And in Revelations 19, it says, it says, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, white and clean, for the fine linen is the righteousness of of the saints. If you're doing righteous deeds in the name of Jesus Christ for a pure motive, it's it's beautiful, it's clean, it's white, and it has a sweet odor before God. It's not a filthy rag. That's a conspiracy of Satan to make you believe that your righteousness stinks before God. It doesn't. If you have self-righteousness, possibly, or you're trying to promote self-righteousness or look better than someone, yes, that's probably what that would be. But if you realistically, from a sincere heart, are desiring to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it's a beautiful thing. It's, a, it's, the, uh, it's fine linen. It's white and clean. 1 John 3.22 says, Whatsoever you ask, you receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience and pleasing God brings you into a love relationship with God in a much greater way than you'll ever have if you, if you take the approach that my salvation is going to kick in at the day of my death and I'm eternally secure. No, we are creatures to serve God and live an active life. Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And that doesn't start at your funeral. No, that starts at your conversion, at your receiving Jesus Christ, that life and that abundant life. And it doesn't serve the devil until you die. No, you can completely cut those, those, uh, those bands of servitude to Satan and your life can be an odor of a sweet smell. You can serve God. I can be righteous. The Bible says I can be righteous. Romans 6, 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The Bible says his commands are not grievous. Brethren, I count myself, Philippians 3.13, to have... I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if any be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. The call of the Apostle Paul is a call to service. It's not a call to confession or to simply confessing Christianity. It's a call to serve. And it's a call to follow Christ. And, and the challenge I want to leave with us is that we can be pleasing to God. What we do in Christ is not a filthy rag. It's a beautiful, sweet odor to God. When you make a choice, when you make a choice to dedicate your life in a, in a fuller way to God, that's pleasing to God. He loves to hear you make those, to say those words. He loves to see it and he loves to assist you in that direction. I can, you can be righteous. We can be holy. We can be, can we be perfect? Can we be without any possible error? Possible? No, that's not what we're talking about. But there's a huge gap between this place of being living in filth and, and rottenness and having a slight error because we've not fully overcome. Following the Lord Jesus Christ brings a life of righteousness, godliness, and you can be pleasing and acceptable to God. You can be a steward of God today and you can live that abundant life. It's not just a futuristic fire insurance. It's not just a pie in the sky by and by. It's now. It's here. It's for us. It's today. You as young people have the choice to be servants of Jesus Christ and your deeds are not a filthy rag. It's a beautiful, sweet odor to God. God sits back and he looks across this group of people that want to follow and serve and commit themselves to being in his kingdom and useful, living a life of faith, believing that God is and that he will reward me. And he sits back and he just enjoys the aroma. He does. I believe, he, I believe he's enjoying this meeting today. I think God's looking down here and he's enjoying this meeting today. And what doubly uh, excites God is when he sees young people making that decision. Making that decision. You guys have bodies and minds that have a future. You know, each one of us, as we get older, we lose potential and ability. And it's good for you to bear that yoke in your youth. Get started young. You'll go further. Get started young. Apply yourself to godliness. Do it on purpose. It's not enough just to come to church once a week or twice a week. That's not enough. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a, is a consuming reality. And if you want the full life, you want to have purpose in your life, be a steward of God. Every part of your life, finances, every aspect of your life, commit it to God. It's not secular and spiritual. It's all about being a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Just like to leave that challenge with you. May God bless you.